Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone here today. It's good to have some visitors, whether you're passing through or whether you are here for the first or fifth time. We're glad you're here and we hope you'll come back and visit again with us here at Lindsay Avenue uh, each and every opportunity that you can. We're going to be talking about prayer today. We're going to be looking at the first chapter of the book of James, James chapter 1. Uh, we'll go from verses 1 through 8. I appreciate how we're reading 5 and 6. That's really uh, the, the primary point we will get to in our study. The book of James was written 2,000 years ago, and even at that time, there had been history before that that he references here in the first verse. So picking up here in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James is merely a Greek form. The New Testament written in Greek is the Greek form of the word Jacob from the Old Testament. So we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you had had those from a Greek background turned into English, it would have been something, something James at the very least. So it's merely the Greek form of Jacob. The word here, servant, in most English translations is actually the word for slave. Uh, it's the same Paul, uh, word Paul uses for himself in the book of Romans, Philippians, and Titus, chapter 1, verse 1. People in the New Testament times viewed themselves as slaves of God. Slaves of God. And that really truly means slave in the way that we would identify with the word slave. When we see the word servant, we often think of someone who is free to come or go. We think of somebody who may be a worker. Workers can quit. They can decide to come to work tomorrow or not. That's not so with a slave. And so here James is viewing himself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if James here is Jesus' brother, and that's more than we really can get into uh, in this discussion this morning, but the writer of this book is almost always uh, assumed and felt to be James, the brother of Jesus. And let's assume for this discussion this morning that is true. How hard do you think it would be for the person that grew up with you, right, the person that had seen you all these different days from childhood on up, to call Jesus his Lord and Master? And the word there is curious. It really does mean Lord. I think it would be rather difficult. I've always thought that if you were the brother or sister of the president, right, how difficult would it be for you to say, yes, sir, Mr. President, or one of these days, yes, ma'am, Mr. President, right? How hard would that would be rather difficult? You know, I'm, I'm used to throwing things back at my brothers or sisters, but showing respect. Here, James is well aware of who his brother Became or was who, who it was who he was revealed to be rather in terms of Lord and Master. He then says to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. In the three hundred plus years before James's writing, so in the three hundred plus years before Jesus came to the earth, the Jewish people had been scattered throughout the known world. They had been scattered throughout the Greek and then the Roman Empire. So they were scattered all over the place. And that scattering was called the dispersion, the diaspora. And that really is like we would disperse a crowd. You spread the crowd out. So 
the crowd of Jewish people who had been concentrated in the land of Israel and in and around Jerusalem had been dispersed, had spread out throughout the land. So it could mean here one of a couple of things. In the first place, it really could stand for all of the Jewish people who had been spread out from Israel. If that is who James is writing to, then he would have been writing to a Jewish audience, people who were not followers of Jesus, people who were not Christians. In the second place, it could stand for Jewish Christians outside of the land of Israel. It could be writing to Jewish people who had been scattered away from the land of Israel, but yet who were followers of Jesus. And in the third place, since the church, followers of Jesus are in fact the true Israel today. We are in fact the true Israel today. It could simply mean the church at large. Now, which of these three would I suggest to you it is? I really believe it's either number two, uh, Jewish Christians who are scattered out and about, or to the church at large, whether Jewish or Gentile. But what I really don't think it would be here is, in fact, uh, Jewish people scattered throughout, because James makes no effort to really try to speak to the Jewish audience, if that were true, about how Jesus is the Messiah. He assumes in this letter that the people understand that Jesus is Lord. He's already called uh, Jesus Lord here in the first verse. So I think highly unlikely that it's number one. From our standpoint, it's either two or three. won't matter to where we are going here this morning. Picking up in verse two, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it. This is actually something that is to be done once for all time, not repeated. One time for all time. Decide right now that when you have trials that come to you, you will already have decided in advance that it's not going to be something that's going to defeat you. Understand and decide today. Choose this day, Joshua had said long ago. James is effectively saying, choose right now, understand and conclude right now that trials are going to be good things for you. Count it all joy, whole, complete joy. Not some joy and a lot of grief. You know, not grief while the trials are going on and then joy looking back on it later. Decide in advance that you are in fact being blessed by facing trials. Now, as I say on the next slide, that's a hard thing. That's a real hard thing. I don't really feel like jumping up and down, yay, I've got more problems I've got to face today. It's a hard thing for all of us. But James is suggesting understand that trials are necessary and that they produce good. So decide and understand in advance that these are going to be good things. Count it all joy when you meet trials, when you meet trials. The language here is very much the same kind of language and idea of the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell in among robbers. This was the setting for the Good Samaritan parable over in Luke chapter 10. And so he didn't think he was going to run into robbers, but he fell in and robbers descended on him. So it's the same thing. When you meet trials, when trials catch you on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, you need to count it all joy. You need to understand that this is actually a good thing that is happening to you. 
Trials rightly faced are harmless, right? They really are. If they are not rightly handled, they turn into temptations to evil, or they can destroy people. I've seen some people who are destroyed by the problem, the trial that comes upon them, rather than by finding a way to survive the problem and come out stronger uh, in the future. As I say, this is a very bold demand being made by James to be happy, to find a complete joy when trials come upon you. Why should I count the trial coming upon me as something that's joyful? Why should I be excited, happy? Why should I look at it with a positive approach? For you know, and this language suggests that this is knowledge that has already been gained by experience. You know from past situations where trials and troubles came upon you and you came out stronger the other side, that it was a good thing for you. You know, the country singers downtown will, will sometimes sing a song that's, that's not exactly the same idea because usually that's after people have been drinking all night or something to that effect. But they'll sometimes say, if it doesn't kill you, it what? Makes you stronger, right? That's not the idea James is really talking about here. And that if you happen to survive a night of drinking, then it's turning out to be good. No, 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 that's not it at all. But it really is, in a sense, the idea that when your faith is tested, it is actually something that you know from the past has made you stronger. So let's take a look. For you know that the testing of your faith, and this is refinement of your faith, refinement of your faith. You know, if you we don't do this at all, we're usually fairly separated from uh, people that might, but if you have metals, metals come from digging up rocks. Very energy intensive to generate aluminum from bauxite, if I'm remembering correctly. Or if you have gold or some other precious metal, it has impurities in it. And the way you get the impurities out is you heat it up. You refine it by fire. Now, if the gold were actually alive, I'm sure it would not really enjoy getting heated up to the temperatures I have seen on television shows. But by heating up the gold, the problem areas that are in there, the impurities that are in the gold will melt at a different temperature and they separate. And so the image being given here is that the testing of your faith will actually get rid of some of the impurities that may be within us. These trials that come upon us, even though we're not going to enjoy them at the time, can turn out to leave behind a stronger, better faith and a more pure inner self. That's what James is talking about. So this trial and testing is directed toward a purpose. You want to emerge stronger than you were at the front, the King James usually translates this word testing up there at the top of the screen as tempt, but tempt has a different idea. When you think of a temptation, it's, you know, as a child it was, should I eat that last cookie in the jar, even though mom told me not to? You didn't do that, sure. No. I mean, that's what we think. Or when we're older, doing something we know full well we shouldn't do, but there's a temptation, especially if you think nobody's around, to do it anyway. That's not the idea here. It's not temptation in the way that we might usually think of temptation, even though the King James is going to translate the same word, tempt, a lot. This is to test, to test something that gets stronger. 
And the best example I can give of that is at the very bottom. A young bird, you know, you may see the, the nest cams sometimes on the internet, so these little birds. What is a bird? A bird can't stay in the nest forever. The bird has to, at some point, test, exercise its wings if it ever hopes to leave the nest. Mama bird may be very attentive at first, but eventually mama bird's gonna get that foot and kick the little baby bird out. Because I, mama bird's got a life to get on with too. The bird needs to test its wings, grow stronger, and it, it may fly just a little bit at first, maybe even just over to another half branch. But if you don't test or exercise the wings of a young bird, it'll never be a strong adult bird. Well, that's how it applies to you and me. If our faith is not tested, it's always essentially a baby faith in the nest. Faith has to be tested has to be put into a situation where it has some trials to go through because it will come out stronger on the other side. That the testing, you know full well that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Produces patience. Now, the word that's used here by James is the idea not simply to have managed to survive this giant weight that fell on me and I lay there not moving. It hasn't quite crushed me to death, but somebody eventually will come and pull the weight off of me. It's not that crushing that I just survived, is that you turn it into something even better. Again, it's that idea of taking the, the metal ore and heating it up. It was shiny before. Gold can look shiny with impurities in it, but it's even more valuable and more refined after coming out the other side. That's what it's supposed to do for us. The testing of our faith, the process of our faith goes through with trials and troubles that come upon us will lead us to be better than we were before. The things that amazed the pagans in the early centuries of the church of the Roman Empire was that the martyrs, the people who were followers of Jesus, did not go to their deaths crying and screaming and begging, please don't kill me. I, I came here only because my mom brought me or whatever. But that they died singing. And the, and the pagans in the stands and the stadiums wondered, what is up with these people? How can they be put to death and know they're going to die in mere moments when we let these animals out of the cages? How can they be singing? to this Jesus as a God. How's that possible? Their deaths actually were the, the early Christians said were fertilizer for future people to discover what Jesus was all about. One Christian who, as he was dying, smiled in the flames and they said, what are you laughing about? Or what are you smiling about? And he said, I saw the glory of God and was glad. Their faith was put to the ultimate test. How did it turn out better for them? They went directly to the arms of Jesus. Let's keep reading. Let patience have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let patience have its full effect. It's an effect that keeps on uh, being there for you. It's not a one-time thing. It's a character trait that gets once it gets developed, remains there, stays there or finish its work, have its full effect, finish its work, have its perfect work. The actual word there is the same word, perfect, teleon is the original word, 
that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it says, when that which is perfect is come. You know, and, and there we often will have someone that, that focuses in on that word and discusses it as the completed New Testament. The word means mature most of the time. And so here, patience will generate maturity. Patience will generate a complete character in you. It will have its final, complete, mature result in us. In us. When you have the enduring power uh, that God's child should have, you're not going to lack anything. You are perfect all over. You are, in fact, complete in all your parts. Remember those early Christians who died in the fire. Would we be drugged, kicking and screaming and crying? They had a faith that had been tested over and over and over again. Have you ever been asked in a harsh environment, do you believe in Jesus? You don't believe in that Jesus guy, do you? You feel pressure. Uh, it's a whole lot easier right now if I say, nah, and then I manage simply to wander off. We haven't yet, in any way, been drugged before wild animals the way they were in the second and third century. We've got a lot to live up to with what some of these earlier believers did when they faced the trials. Let patience, sometimes the word is also translated steadfastness. Let patience or steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all. Patience and endurance can make you perfect and complete, but if you are not there yet, if you don't feel that you have patience, if you don't feel perfect and complete, if you don't feel like that I really am the kind of person God wants me to be, because when trials come on me, they don't seem to generate a shinier metal, right? They don't seem to do that. They seem to affect me. I don't seem to be able to vanquish those problems. I don't seem to over, be able to overcome those problems. Then if we lack wisdom, if we are coming up short in how to handle these kinds of problems, if we don't seem to know the best way to do it, this is a banking figure. How do I thought of you at this point? Any accountants that are here, this is a banking figure. At the end of the day, the cash drawer is short. It's supposed to have $100 in it, and it's got $98.40. Well, where's the extra buck 60 in that circumstance? If any of you is coming up short, your wisdom drawer does not have as much as it's supposed to. Right? People don't just say, oh, it's all right. You know, they'll often ding the cashier. The cashier has to make up the shortage. Well, we're short. We were given wisdom from God, and yet we've lost some of it. We've come up short. There's a shortage in the wisdom cash register, as it were. What do you do? If we're short of wisdom, what do you do? Ask God. And the language here is keep on asking God. This is not a, well, I asked God for wisdom. I remember it right now. It was on a Thursday afternoon back in 2003 in November. I've already done that. I've asked God for wisdom. That's not the, the intent here. As you continue to face trials, as you continue to have problems, as you continue to have stress in your life, we need to keep on asking God for wisdom. Keep going back to God saying, I can't handle this on my own. I need help. I need to see what to do in order to 
let this problem that's on me make me shinier, right? To keep the gold analogy going. And God gives generously to all. Then goes Solomon once again. Solomon had been given a vision from God in a dream. Anything you want, ask and I will give it to you. And what did Solomon ask for? I want wisdom to be the best possible ruler of your people that I can be. And God gave him wisdom. And because he didn't ask for all the shiny stuff that's out there, God gave him above and beyond he could ever have wanted or hoped for with everything else. Wisdom is in many ways the first thing, the primary thing to ask for. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith. Without reproach, the King James here version says, let him ask of God who uh, upbraideth not, who gives and upbraideth not. I don't recall the last time I used the word upbraideth. Matt, have you used upbraideth any time recently? You know, that's, you got to get out your dictionary to see what the word upbraideth not means. Or upbraideth. I've been upbraided. You know, I, well, that's why I chose this uh, English standard version here, who gives without reproach. What does that mean? How does somebody give with reproach? God, we're told, gives without reproach. How, do, how does someone give with reproach? What's the alternative to that? Well, there's an evil habit, habit some people have. They give, but they have some stinging words at the time. Sure. You need some cash here. I've got it for you. But you know, if you had listened to me all this time, you wouldn't be in this situation. Or you should have been here last week. You know, it's always been here. Now you come crawling back to me. Oh, I'll help you, but I've got a dose of words for you. That's what we're talking about. Some people will give, but they give in such a hateful, hurtful way. You almost want to say, no, 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 keep it. Because if you've got that kind of attitude toward helping me when I've got a real problem, I don't want it. And I've, I've seen that's I think we've all seen that before. You keep going back to that person after something. No, that forget it, right? You just want to say forget it. God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. You have to ask in faith. You have to believe that God is active in the world, that he has a benevolent, good outlook on helping people through providence and through acting in our lives, and that we have to have a personal reliance upon him. I know a lot of smart people, and there have been times I've gone to some people and said, what would you do in this kind of situation? I mean, it's not a bad thing to do, to go to smart people, but that's not who we should rely on. When we find that we're lacking wisdom, we should rely upon God, ask God. The rabbis between the Testaments spoke about this. The next two, on the next slide, is going to have a couple of verses from rabbis that wrote in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is not scripture. This is not from God. This is human wisdom from very smart men around 200 B.C. I do this sometimes. Technically, it comes from some books in the Apocrypha. I've talked about that before. This is not from God. I'm laying this out really clearly. Okay? So I don't want anybody to James said, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. I just want to show you this is not a new idea that James is talking about right here in James. There's a long history of making sure that when you help people, you don't do it with stinging words, with reproach, with upbraiding. Okay? So let's take a look at what some of these... Smart men had said. 
One of them from a, a collection of things called the Wisdom of Sirach. He said, my child, do not mix reproach with your good deeds. Sure, I'll come help you clean your yard up. You know, if you had been paying attention all this time, it wouldn't be as messed up as it is today. Or, do also, do not spoil your gift with harsh words. You know, here's a trash can, boy, it sure looks like you need it around here. See what, see, this? see what I'm talking about? There's so many ways that somebody can help, but they're not really helping. The help opportunity is really a way to either make them feel better or to point out your failures. And that's not the way we should help each other. The good news is that's not the way God helps us either. Here's another one a little longer. He says, a fool's gift will profit you nothing. For he looks for recompense sevenfold. He's given you something, but he's going to want a lot more back later. He gives little and upgrades much. He gives a little bit, but really scolds you for having to have to ask for something. He opens his mouth like a town crier. You know, the person going around, hear ye, hear ye. Think of something from the Middle Ages or something like that. Today he lends, and tomorrow he asks for it back. Such a one is hateful to God and <laughs> so first of all, if you have the opportunity to help somebody, help them. Period. Help them. I don't care what they've done, if anything, to get themselves into the situation. That's not the point when it comes time to help. Help the people. If they have some sort of habits that got them into a problem, look for ways to help change the direction of the ship, right? Turn the wheel a little bit after you've helped them. Don't be like the person that we all have just been identifying with who says, well, I'm glad to help you, but you know you should have come last week. You know, that kind of thing. Don't do that. God doesn't do it. We shouldn't do it either. Let him ask in faith, the one who is lacking wisdom, let him, let her ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person is not supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what does this mean? Well, think about waves of the ocean. If you've never seen the ocean, maybe you've seen the uh, bigger lake. Is there a pattern to the waves? I know right up next to the shore, the waves do tend to come on and crash. You know, but uh, out, out a little bit further from the shore, I mean, things are bouncing around. I don't ever know which direction the waves are coming or going because they're just randomly bouncing around. Well, that's the problem we've got here. If you're asking God for wisdom, but you really don't think he's going to give it to you, then you're really just kind of bouncing around. There's no direction in your life. There's no direction in what you're trying to do. You can't be that way. You're asking God for wisdom, but I don't really think he's going to give it to you. All right? That's who we are if we are doubting. We're just like bouncing around. We, we sometimes say somebody's just bouncing off the walls. Now sometimes it's because they've, they've gone half energetically crazy. But we also may say that because they don't seem to be going anywhere. You're just bouncing off the walls. You just, you, 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 you don't have any real direction. So we can't be like that. If you ask in faith, by kind of the definition here, you won't be doubting. And if you doubt, you weren't asking in faith. They don't go together. These are two ways of saying the same thing. 
If you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives freely and generously without giving you reproach, without giving you some lip back. That's the way we would say it right here, right? God's not going to condemn you. He's going to be very happy you finally realize you don't have all the wisdom you need and you came to him and asked for it. But when you ask God for wisdom, don't approach him with doubts. Well, it says I'm supposed to do it. I'll do it, but it ain't going to help. It ain't, it isn't going to help. Asking in faith puts the requirements on me. It's up to me to have decided and realized, first of all, that I lack wisdom and that I'm going to ask God and that I need to have faith enough in God, asking in faith, faith enough in God to know he's going to help me when I call out to him. Now, if I do this and say, Lord, give me a new Tesla, suppose that's what I pray to God about. Well, those Teslas look nice. I see them on the roads. I do my best to stay away from them if I happen to be driving. The last thing I want to do is get one of them. <laughs> but if I were to pray, you know, Lord, give me a Tesla. Lord, give me that million-dollar house out someplace. If I say that, I can't really imagine how that would be asked in faith. Lord, give me a 50-carat diamond ring. You could ask that, but it's not actually asking in faith. What does it mean to be asking something in faith? I think rather than asking for things in this circumstance, rather than asking for car, money, house, whatever it may be, Tesla, right? They sure are nice and pretty. I would suggest the best thing here is to ask for help developing the qualities that make us better than you. Wisdom is one of the most important ones. Because wisdom, once I have it, once God gives it to me, once I develop the proper character and patience, that I can understand the wisdom God gives to me, I will be a better person helping other people and I will be living closer to the kind of person God wants me to be. So when we see verses in the Bible, in the New Testament, talking about prayer, if you listen to a kid pray, you can understand sometimes, you know, Lord, make sure, please let us have lots of cookies after lunch today or something. That's sometimes, I'm afraid, how we feel, we sound to God when we pray for things. You know, I love cookies, don't get me wrong. But if God hears me all the time praying and I'm asking for cookies, Tesla's cookies, house, cookies, 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 I'm still praying to God like a little child. So my challenge to myself and my challenge to all of us today as we pray to God for things in order to be better people, let's focus on prayer for the qualities, developing the qualities that will make us the kind of people God wants us to be. Patience, love, joy, kindness. Even if it's just a few of these things, we're going to not only be better followers of Jesus, we're going to make a difference to our neighbors. And wouldn't the world be a better place if there were more of us who had love, joy, and wisdom? I think so. I think so. So in conclusion this morning, what do you need to ask God for today? 
We've been reading about if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously without reproach. But we have to ask in faith with no doubt. There are always things that we need. And sometimes I totally understand. We need clothing, shoes. You know, I know there are things that we need, but I, I suspect our lives are going to be better over the longer term if we focus on asking God to help with problems we have following after Jesus. So what do you need to ask God for this morning? Do you need to become his child? Do you need to become a member of his family? If you have not been uh, able to state that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came and lived and died and to pay the price for the wrong choices that you had made, that I had made, and decided that I'm going to start living for God instead of living for myself, followed by being immersed in water to show that you are dying to your old way of living to be raised to walk, as Paul says, in the newness of life. If you haven't done that, you need to become a member of his family today. You can't really follow Jesus if you're still living for yourself. Or if you are a member of God's family, if there's any way we can help you where you need to take the concern before God, now is your time to come as we stand and sing.